Hello, everyone. Welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we take a trip down the winding, dark, and sometimes treacherous roads of Delmarva. Delaware is in the Mid-Atlantic region of the United States, and it encompasses all of Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. What I do in this podcast is review incidents that have happened on the eastern shore, whether they be natural or man-made disasters, crimes that have taken place, or any event that has helped shape Delmarva. If you do find this type of content informative, please like or follow subscribe. Whichever the podcast app that you're listening through provides as a way for you to follow the podcast. And though I'm not familiar with how the algorithms work, but that also does help the podcast move up in searches. So if someone is looking um, for a particular type of content, this helps move the podcast higher if they're searching for, you know, the keywords regarding this podcast. I've said on my last episode that you know, the, the next episode coming up was going to be of a very sensitive topic, as well as the acts that were perpetrated against Matthew Williams are just horrifying. So this will be the warning that I give before we proceed that the content that you will be hearing is disturbing. This was the most extreme act of violence that I've, I've seen or heard about. The time frames in total that we'll be covering really go over centuries, actually, is all connected and led to events that happened in December of 1931 in Salisbury. So just a couple of things um, before I start. All of the sources that I used will be in the description of the episode. I did use a number of different sources um, for this episode that were more than the usual number of sources that I use. Um, Also, within one of those sources, there were a number of different pages of a project that had been um, started in the 1970s, and unfortunately... To view those pages, you will need to click on each one to enlarge it um, and open it in a different link. So I did use information from many, many of those statements that were in that project. But what I'll do is I will put in the actual um, web address of the main site that was used from Salisbury University. And that will have a lot of different information regarding this case specifically. And from there, if you want to review um, the different reports, then you can click on each. I will also be reviewing a number of things with historical context. And that history is not only about Salisbury, not only about Maryland or Delmarva, but also about the United States as a whole. So what I will do is first provide a brief timeline of the development or key dates in Maryland. And though there are, of course, a a large number of those dates, I will narrow those down to ones that seem most important for um, the topic that we'll be covering today. Then I will narrow the focus down to Salisbury and 
events that occurred within the nation will also be discussed when they're relevant to the dates that we review or the events that were happening in Salisbury or Maryland. Also, I do want to make a couple of statements. First, remember that all people are innocent until proven guilty. That is something that we need to remember throughout so many aspects of life. Not only what we'll be reviewing today, but even now going forward with a knowledge of that that foundation of how our judicial system should work and recognizing that while that may be in the letter of the law, some people do not always follow that or believe that and have presumptions and prejudices that serve to taint and even pervert justice. We will see that justice was perverted to the utmost extent in the topic that we'll be covering today. And it is from the acts of a mob of people that we do not have one definitive narrative of what happened on December 4th, 1931. Because of that, I will need to use words such as officially or unofficially, technically, varying accounts, and other words such as that because we don't have anybody being held accountable. We don't have one narrative that is consistent throughout. Um, While researching this, I read a number of different statements made by witnesses or descendants whose family members had told them what had occurred, and there are very, very few threads of consistency that run through them. So when I do get to the specific date and go through the events that occurred, I will go over what one source stated was the official narrative, though there are so many different statements made. I don't really believe there can be one official narrative because it's not known. There was never any court date. There was never any trial. And so any facts that could have been established are gone. So with that being said, I'm going to first just jump into the timeline of important dates. I will be going over these dates from one particular site, which again will be listed in the description. But in some cases um, of that timeline, because the description is so short, I may read the description verbatim. So just to let everybody know that some of those descriptions may be in the words directly of the site that I am um, sourcing. Also, I do normally try, and I always emphasize the word try, to go over the events that took place with as little of my opinion as I can. Of course, there are usually times where I feel like I need to interject So that will be extremely difficult in this episode for a number of different reasons. The first being, the first is that as there are so many varying accounts and just a few established facts, it does become necessary to form an opinion before any subsequent actions can be addressed. And also the subject matter itself should cause someone to have emotion to feel the injustice that occurred. 
So to get into the dates, we are going to go all the way back to 1608. And at that time, Captain John Smith explored the Chesapeake Bay. You may recognize the name John Smith from a very, very inaccurate portrayal of Pocahontas' story um, from the Disney movie, not historically accurate. In 1631, an English trading post was established on Kent Island. Now, at that time, you know, of course, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge would not be there, but that's really where the end of the eastern shore of Maryland ends. So Kent Island is right there at where the Bay Bridge starts, and so that is really a current dividing point of East and West Maryland. In 1649, Puritans founded a town named Providence, which later was named Annapolis, and an act concerning religion was passed. In 1664, slavery was allowed by law in Maryland. Just a brief historical context as we will go more into that. Before then, there were no official laws that allowed slavery, even though it was being practiced. This was the date that allowed it by law. 1695 is when Annapolis became the capital of Maryland. Baltimore was founded in 1729. The Mason-Dixon Line was established in 1767, and that set boundaries between Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia, which at that time contained the land area now known as West Virginia. For a brief period of time, for less than a year, Annapolis was the nation's capital from November 1783 to August 1784. In 1791, Maryland donated land to establish Washington, D.C. Throughout periods in time here, too, um, the development of the railroad started to be established in Maryland. Um, In 1837, the Baltimore Sun began publication, and in 1838, a man named Frederick Douglass disguised himself as a sailor and got on a train to Haverty Grace, Maryland. He was escaping slavery. Frederick Douglass also was the first African-American to be nominated as a vice president of the United States. He was on the what's called the Equal Rights Party, with the nominee of Victoria Woodhall for president. He was a leader in the anti-slavery and abolitionist movements. His oratory was strong and powerful, and, and his legacy is here today. He wrote three autobiographies, including information on time when he was a slave and Even in the town that I live in, my son's former elementary school, as they're now in middle school, was Frederick Douglass Elementary School. Even though I wasn't really intending to go into a lot of detail with each date, I did think it was important to discuss Frederick Douglass and all that he did during his lifetime where where he broke many barriers. The next date is... 1844, the world's first telegraph line um, was established between Baltimore and Washington. In 1845, the U.S. Naval Academy um, was established in Annapolis. And as I've discussed in previous episodes, water is very important to this area. 
1850, Harriet Tubman established the Underground Railroad. If you're not familiar with that, that is or was a system of tunnels, hidden rooms, ways for people to escape slavery going from south to north with the help of abolitionists and, and anti-slave movements. People would be hidden in hidden rooms or have, you know, hidden doors to get to a tunnel to allow people to travel as far north as they could to escape. And in 1864, Maryland abolished slavery. As we briefly discussed Frederick Douglass, he shows that words do have meaning and words can be powerful. And many times as I'm working on research and you know, beginning to discuss a certain topic, I really struggle with how to describe the events. I have to think, does the word story actually convey a powerful enough meaning? Because while technically there are so many different types of stories when I use that word, I wonder if it doesn't really portray the severity or the seriousness of an issue. I look at it and know that story can be anything from the retelling or the narrative of a person's life, but it can also be a fantastical tale that transports us from time and place as an escape, basically for entertainment. So story sometimes just doesn't seem right because it has varying different uses really within the same meaning. When I think of the word crime, while it's getting a little closer if I am covering crimes that in that topic, it also can be, you know, really perceived in different ways. Just saying a crime really doesn't say the severity. A crime is anything from you know, stealing a candy bar up to murder, kidnapping, and even more horrific acts. Using the word incident sounds kind of cold, like it's just something that's going into a statistic or into a file, not really exploring the humanity but there is a word that conveys exactly what happened. Now, when I heard about Matthew Williams, I hadn't heard the name before, but I had put a post on Reddit um, and just asked if anybody had any topics or ideas about you know, what to cover. And I you know, received a few suggestions, some I'd already been you know, thinking of doing, but someone sent a message and just reading a few words, it, it caused me to stop and go immediately to search what had happened. And I could not get through the description just in one reading. I had to pause. And that is one example of how powerful the use of a word can be. And you know, there is a word that while legally and technically has one meaning, it brings to mind other events that can feel like a punch to the gut, something that instantaneously brings you to reality and to the horrific acts that happened based solely on one's skin color. And while I have at times just wondered what happened on 
you know, the land that I'm living on, on land that I've even just walked on, where we visit businesses and stores, where we wait to pick up our children. And just in general, I have wondered about those things because I do like history and I have to wonder what events took place in the same place, but in a different time. While learning more and more about Matthew Williams, I realized how many times I'd driven down the streets that he walked, that he lived on, and ultimately where he was kidnapped. So sometimes the land that we're standing on or using was once covered in blood, where battles had been fought and one person sought to usurp control over another. And the word that I'm talking about is something that many of us don't want to imagine could happen so close to our homes. Less than a century ago, less than 100 years, a time from when people could still be alive today, when, from when this occurred. They may have been very young, but that gives a context of just how recent it really is. My father was born three years after the events of, of this case or of this topic. And the legal or formal meaning of that word is, quote, a form of violence in which a mob, under the pretext of administering justice without trial, executes a presumed offender, often after inflicting torture and corporal mutilation. So this is one of the formal definitions of that word. And while some of the actions such as, and while that word technically can be used in other situations, regardless of even the nation that you live in, as this type of mentality can be seen all throughout history, I think when we as Americans hear it, one thing comes to mind. The word that I'm talking about is lynching. And as we'll see in Matthew Williams, in Garfield King, and in An Unknown Man, they were all lynched by a mob who did not take the time for justice, did not take the time for a trial, did not establish any true facts through evidence or witness testimony. But as I'm even reviewing and writing and finding information about these men, I had to wonder, even if they were given a trial, even if there was a jury and evidence presented, would they still have died? In other words, would they have been given a fair trial with a jury of their peers, or would the trial have just been a pretext and ultimately they still be executed for crimes that they may not have committed. So even if the letter of the law was followed by having a proper trial, we have to wonder if the men in the jury would have treated the accused fairly or would they place judgment on them based solely on the color of their skin. This makes me think of, for for lack of any other word that I can think of, hypocrisy in the saying that all men are created equal, yet at the same time, some men held more control based solely on the color of their skin. And I know it may seem like I'm going into a lot of history, but I think it is important. Salisbury itself was really built with the help of the water, and you may not think that immediately if you live near Salisbury. 
but even though it was not directly on the Atlantic Ocean or firmly on the Chesapeake Bay, there were tributaries and rivers that did feed into the city. So many of the town's founders used the Wicomico River as a way to export their goods um, to be sold to the U.S. and beyond, as well as a way to import goods. Now, when people were coming over to the colonies, which is what they would have been referred to at the time, there were many different types or variances in the financial resources that each person had. Some people had no resources and they were leaving their country to try to find a new life, a life that offered more opportunity, but they couldn't pay their way. So something called indentured servitude would take place. What this means is someone would sign a contract stating that they would work for the wealthy landowners for a specific amount of time. And by the time that their contract ended, um, sometimes they were given some things such as a small piece of land or some money to start out with because you know, if they just left with nothing from their time as being an indentured servant, you know, they would be right back where they started. So there was usually some type of clause to provide something to them once they left. Now, the, the contract, though, could actually be extended. So if the person in servitude ever, you know, did something that could reflect poorly on the owner of the contract for women if they became pregnant outside of wedlock. The contract owner could extend that date as to when it would end. Now, while I don't have specific resources here, I also have seen a couple of documentaries that did mention that sometimes people convicted of a, some crimes were sent to America and someone would buy their contract so basically it just transferred the time from what they would serve in a penitentiary in England. They would now serve that as an indentured servant. Now this does actually play a role in future events. Now just to get to some other history about Salisbury and then I'll tie it all together. Um, some people, um, the landowners were given just straight land grants Others, though, were given 50 acres of land for themselves and whoever they could bring to America. This would include servants and slaves. So originally, there were not actually laws that were, for lack of any better term, in the books that would allow slaves. However, it was a practice that was still practiced. In 1619, there is a record of, quote, 20-odd, unquote, slaves that came to Virginia. Massachusetts did then, um, in 1641, start to, in the books, allow for slaves. So they actually made the laws that would allow for it, and in, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, and in Virginia in 1661. Now, Maryland, that was 1664, and that's one of the dates I went over a little while ago. So, so depending on when a landowner may have come over, he may have been looking at different ways to capitalize on you know, the 50 acres of land that they could get 
or making sure that they had labor for an extended period of time. What started to happen is as more and more indentured servants were reaching the end of their contract and they departed you know, the, the homestead of the contract owner, they also would then start looking for land. At the same time, the landowner had lost some of his labor force. So unfortunately, some of the men realized that the whole process of indentured servitude may not have been the better route to take as far as financial gains. And what they decided to do was import slaves. And that way, they had forced labor. So basically, the landowners looked at other human beings as someone to be sold and bought for the sake of growing their money, for increasing their wealth. And this is appalling and just, we know it happened, but it's still shocking when you hear about or read about that people were bought and sold. Those are words that should never be together. Salisbury did grow. Um, they functioned off what was called parishes, and the parishes were set forth in 100 acres. Um, at the time when the Civil War did hit America, um, Salisbury did have to halt some of their prospective roads to growth as the construction of the railroad in Salisbury stopped. And after the Civil War, the geography changed to a closer version of Wicomico and Worcester counties that we see today. And looking at the Civil War, Delaware and Maryland were border states, really. Maryland was considered a slave state. Mar Delaware was a free state. However, with the borders being so close, there was you know, a large number of both sides represented in each state. I mentioned briefly the Mason-Dixon line, which was really the line that was considered the border between North and South. Um, the, the line was actually established less than 10 miles from Salisbury. And we've passed that marker, my family and I. It's, it's a marker that does have kind of a, a building around it to, I guess, protect the information on the plaque. And knowing one of the meaning of the meanings of the Mason-Dixon line, it makes you realize just how close Delaware and Maryland were from either side, north or south. While Maryland did allow slavery, they actually did not cede from the Union. So that was a little unusual. Um, and many citizens fought for the Union from Maryland. There are estimates about how many men from Maryland fought for each side, and it's thought that around 80,000 men fought for the Union, while 20,000 fought for the Confederacy. However, these are really estimates as some Marylanders went to Virginia and signed up, so that 20,000 could be more. And we may have all heard the term brother versus brother when it comes to the Civil War, and there were many instances where um, people from Maryland had to fight against each other. Um, in one battle, the 1st Maryland Confederate Infantry fought against the 1st Maryland Union Infantry, and two different factions 
you know, from the same state would fight against each other through numerous battles. So we all know that the Union won the Civil War, but that does not change people's minds. That would not make someone who before had thought that they had a right to own somebody, their mindset is not going to automatically switch and say that, oh, the North won, so I'm now going to follow all their rules. Of course, this did not change these people's opinions about how they should treat people of other races. So the Union won the war, but that was definitely not the bigger war that was being fought internally within the U.S. As the 19th century came to an end, violence would rear its ugly head again and take the life of Garfield King, an 18-year-old who was just going to a store. That's something we take for granted every day, but he was met with violence. Now, while this episode will primarily be about Matthew Williams, I do think it's important to discuss Garfield King as a very similar incident took place long before Matthew Williams. Garfield King was a young black man who shot a 22-year-old white man named Herman Kenny. Now, Herman did not die immediately. He lived for about three days, and he identified Garfield King as the shooter, as well as you know, the people he was with that day identified Mr. King. Mr. King was also with some of his friends that day, so what this started as was an argument between a group of white men and a group of black men. The argument did start to become violent, and Mr. King said he acted in self-defense as Herman Kenny had shoved him or pushed him. Whether or not this would have been found as self-defense within a court of law will never be known for two reasons. One is that, again, we have to think of the time period and the jury and whether or not he would have been given a fair trial anyway. But then secondly, he also would not have made it to a trial. Before Herman Kenny even passed away in the hospital, King had been kidnapped. So just as facts were not established in Matthew Williams' case, the facts of what happened initially at the store were never established. So the day after Kenny was shot, 100 or possibly up to 150 men went to the jail and told the sheriff to give them the keys to the cell. The sheriff did not give up the keys. And I'm not exactly sure how they got a telephone pole, but the mob used a telephone pole and an axe to get into King's cell and pull him out. He was beaten, hanged, and shot many times. And then the mob left him there. No one was held accountable, even though the governor offered a $1,000 reward for information that led to their arrest. That would be approximately $33,000 today. Just a short side note. Okay, there, there were a lot of men there. But I would think that a sheriff would have known at least one. I know that Salisbury was not a tiny, tiny town at that point where the sheriff may have known every single person, but 100 to 150 men, he had to know of 
know at least one person within that group. That's just my thought, but that's one of the thoughts that I had regarding this particular lack of accountability, to say the least. And between the time of Garfield King's lynching and Matthew Williams's, there was a little over 30 years. You would have hoped that things would have changed, that possibly with a new generation, that they would see that the attitudes and beliefs that their ancestors held weren't right. However, there were still a large number of people who held to those beliefs. And in a series of events that plagued Salisbury, Maryland in December of 1931, three men would be killed. And even though a mob stated that they were seeking justice for the first man killed, what they truly did was deny justice for him, for their murder victims, and for victims of these types of crimes throughout the United States. And during that last month of 1931, that same mob also perpetrated yet another indignity on one of their victims, as one man was left without his name, and he will be referred to as the unknown man. Matthew Williams was born on February 8, 1908, and his childhood and youth were filled with tragedy. That began when, at just four years old, his mother died of pneumonia. So this would be around 1912, and at that time, pneumonia was not treatable as it is today. So pneumonia would have been extremely serious, and there were a large number of people who would die from pneumonia each year. After her death, he and his older sister, Olivia, were sent to live with his mother's mother, and that was Mary Handy. And unfortunately, the trajectory of Matthew's life did not get any better. His father died about four years after he had moved into his grandmother's home. Then, about six years later, his grandfather also died. So at this time, it was not unusual for children to leave school if they were needed to help support the family. So at the age of 14, Matthew stopped schooling and he tried to find work to support the rest of his family. His grandmother, though, did pass away also, and so he went to live with his aunt named Addie, his uncle, and their children, his cousins. So he had lost the immediate members of his family, but he had so much other family that loved him, and he was able to move in with his aunt, and she affectionately nicknamed him Buddy. The house was on Isabella Avenue, which if you're from the area, you have probably passed hundreds, if not thousands of times, and, and may have never thought about the people who lived there before today, maybe never stopped to think about the history that was rooted in any particular area that you may be passing through or over. Though I do not have the exact year, Matthew Williams worked for Daniel J. Elliott for about eight to ten years. Mr. Elliott owned a lubber yard and a box factory. And while Matthew's main job was to work within the factory, he also worked with the Elliott family doing jobs that they needed done. Many people reported that Matthew's and Elliott's um, relationship was good 
many reports or statements that I reviewed said that they were fond of each other. And if he did odd jobs for the family, it does show a level of trust that Daniel Elliott must have had in him. Matthew worked very hard. He did not spend any extra money on extravagances, except as some reports mentioned that he did love to splurge on his hair. He didn't date much, but he did go to a number of churches, and he was religious, serious, and driven. And things started out normally on December 4th, 1931. And how many times have we heard that at the beginning of any traumatic or tragic event? As usual, his day started out at his aunt's home, and he spent some time playing with his younger cousins and then sent off to work for the factory. Now, I can't say exactly what time that was. I did see one report say that said 4 o'clock p.m. That seemed a little late for me, given the time of year and how dark things would get um, You know, early on December 4th but that was the only time that I saw mentioned in any of them. Now, except for some very basics, the way the rest of the day went is not entirely known. The only things that we can really say we know for sure is that Daniel Elliott died. Matthew Williams was shot three times. He was taken, in a, taken by a mob and was killed. The reasons or motives behind the shootings the order of events, the location of certain events, and most importantly, who actually murdered Daniel Elliott has never been firmly established. As there was no trial, there could be no witness testimony truly given. As there was no trial, no evidence could be submitted to the court for preservation and for review. We have the word of one witness who had a lot to gain with Daniel Elliott's death. So in many ways, things that I'm going to be speaking about over the next 20 minutes or so will be based on he said evidence, basically meaning these are accounts that were given by someone, whether they were witnesses or had been told the order of events through relatives. And of course, through time, information is forgotten. Thoughts get muddled. And even as we'll see from a project that began in the 1970s, the recollection of events on that day are vastly different. Even though, with the exception of one, it is agreed that the mob was around 2,000 people. So I'm going to start with the first narrative or description of events that I read about when I first started to research this and using that as a base every time I read a different statement or something different in the newspaper you know the differences were glaring that shows how important it is to write down history to remember history because if we don't the lives and legacies of those before us will be lost on December 4th, 1931, supposedly Matthew had wanted to discuss his range at, his wages with Daniel Elliott. The discussion supposedly got heated and an argument ensued. At that point, it is suggested that Matthew Williams killed his boss 
whom by all accounts he was very fond of, and Elliot was also fond of Matthew. Then supposedly Williams shot himself in an unsuccessful suicide attempt. James Elliot, who was Daniel's son, supposedly came upon the two of them and took the gun that was in the vicinity and shot Matthew again in the chest and in the leg. I've heard some say the back and the leg, but still Matthew was alive. The summation of the next events were provided by a man from Philadelphia. His name was Howard Nelson and he was visiting the city on business. He recounted this statement to a newspaper. Mr. Howard was African-American, but he said his skin was light and that the mob that was all around him that day must have thought that he was white. So these are the events. And again, it's a summation of what he um, had given to a newspaper. Early that morning, he had left for Princess Anne. That's a town that is pretty close to Salisbury. And he came back to Salisbury that evening. Of course, the main topic of conversation was the death of Daniel Elliott. He had been discussing that death with someone, but he saw that people were lining up around the front of the newspaper building, the Salisbury Times. Now, after Mr. Nelson was finished with the conversation he was having, he went over to where the group was and read the bulletin outside of the newspaper office. I cannot repeat what the bulletin said. It is... I think the only way I can describe it is the most appalling language I've ever seen printed. And this was from a newspaper. A newspaper is supposed to be unbiased and report the facts. And it was just unimaginable to us today, I think, that anybody, much less a newspaper, would print this type of vitriol. It was really just not describable. And not only did the newspaper print words of hate which could fuel acts of revenge, or what this mob would say was revenge, but the newspaper initially got the information wrong. The bulletin had said that Matthew Williams was dead, and one of the men that was around Mr. Nelson began to talk to him and said that Matthew had died too soon, that he had had plans for Matthew that night. The quote was, there was going to be some fun here tonight. End quote. However, that bulletin was swiftly replaced with the correct poster that said that Matthew was indeed alive and his condition was improving. More and more people began to read the bulletin and started to separate into groups, probably with friends or family or neighbors, until someone shouted to go to the hospital. And all of the men began to move towards the hospital with Mr. Nelson following them not aware of the carnage that he was about to witness. He was also in the middle of a crowd of men who were going to kill a man before there was any evidence given or trial proceedings. The crowd arrived at the hospital, and as the mob approached the hospital, a man did stop them and ask them not to disturb Matthew. But some of the mob had already made it past and they were headed towards the segregated ward of the hospital. And they took Matthew from his bed. And if what has already occurred did not make you question the mob's sense of humanity, the next things will. 
they did not bring Matthew out the door. They threw him out of the window. So we have a man who is in a hospital gown. He doesn't have slippers or socks. This is not you know, 2022. This is 1931. So he just has a hospital gown on. He has bandages around his head, his chest, and his leg. And this mob threw him out of the window. And the fear and confusion of what he felt just had to be, has to be unimaginable. The crowd then dragged him to the courthouse lawn. And by this point, it did not appear that Matthew was in a fully conscious state. And also, this did happen at around 8 p.m., and it gets dark very early in December and in the winter along the eastern shore. So by 8 p.m., it must have been pretty dark. The mob was reportedly at around 2,000 people. Yes, at 2,000. And this has stayed pretty consistent through the accounts of that day, except for one person who said it was just a handful of people. But what they did to Matthew is difficult to describe and difficult to hear about. The fact that while the hospital itself has changed quite a bit through the years, how it's grown and even in the past couple of years changed names, the fact is that a man was pulled from the hospital, from a place that he should have felt safe and that those within were only seeking to help him. Now, looking at this from 90 years later, you know, we don't have, you know, the number of of hospital staff that may have been working that day or what resources they may have had to try to stop the mob. But the fact that a mob itself disrespected a place of healing so much that they forced their way in shows the meaning of the term mob mentality. Right here is where I'm going to end the episode for today. I have been debating whether or not to leave this all in one episode or to put it into two episodes. After thinking a lot about it, I, I did decide finally to go into two episodes because I do want to review some of the statements and accounts that were repeated in the 1970 to 1973 project. I think that those statements give a lot of insight to how people saw the murder of Matthew Williams. We'll also go over some information about the unknown man, even though there really wasn't much information that could be provided. But even though he does not have his name, I still think that he needs to be discussed so that if there's any possibility that someone out there may remember people talking about a relative or a loved one that went missing, that there may still be some people alive who have heard of that. And I will discuss that more um, in the next episode. But, but while he has yet to regain his name, he cannot be forgotten. When I do episodes where, um, where there will be more than one episode covering a topic, I do get the second episode out um, faster than the normal two to three weeks um, sometimes a little longer between episodes, so probably within the next week, but as soon as possible, I will get the next episode out so that we can continue Matthew's and the unknown man's story 
and look at the insight that the, the statements from years later provide. They are quite interesting and informative on the perceptions at that time. And until I talk to you in the next episode, goodbye.